I think healthcare, we cannot separate it from politics in our country. And we need to demand more from the politicians because the only change that we see in society Mm. and policy is the change that benefits the people who are the loudest. I think the biggest challenge that we've got in New Zealand is that too much power is concentrated in the hands of a few. You look at uh, where National Labor get their money from. It, it's largely from the wealthy individuals. And th- those individuals, you could argue, have a disproportionate amount of influence on the system. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Su, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. So in this episode of Revolving Door Syndrome, we have Josh Van Veen, a political analyst. He's worked in New Zealand First, Health and Disability Commissioner, and the Taxpayers Union. So what is the purpose of the Health and Disability Commission? The HDC, Health and Disability Commissioner, was set up to promote and protect the rights of people who use healthcare and disability services. There is a code of rights which is enshrined in legislation. There are 10 rights, just for example, the right to be treated with dignity, the right to make a complaint, the right to be informed. So these are legal rights that every individual is entitled to and it's the obligation of healthcare providers to uphold those rights. The role of the commissioner is to, you could say, enforce them and to ensure that providers are meeting their obligations. And how well do you think that system is working at the moment? On average, the HDC receives probably about 3,000 or so complaints per year. And most of those complaints, I would say what you'd call low level. So where there isn't a great deal of harm involved, but obviously people have had a negative experience with the health system. And these complaints range from the receptionist was rude to me or I've been waiting too long to see a specialist. And I think the the HDC has a very good system for triaging those complaints. So so identifying the ones that are potentially quite serious and could involve serious harm to the public. And and those that that are maybe less serious, I say less serious, and they're no less serious to the person making the complaint. But in in terms of the bigger picture and uh, looking at risk, I I think HDC does a good job at that. However, there are a lot of systemic problems within the health system. As we've got an aging population, chronic illnesses are increasing. There's a lot of burden on the system. And and we've seen that particularly with the last two years with the pandemic. The health system is really struggling to cope with demand. So the number of complaints and problems that people are experiencing have increased. Because how satisfactory is it for both the patients and healthcare workers to go through the HDC complaint process? Because me personally, Mm. as a doctor, I haven't had to go through a complaint myself yet. I know that there's lots of my colleagues who have. And for a lot of those, they're 
like you say, probably systemic mm. issues. Your patient hasn't had their treatment done properly or their tests ordered correctly. And like you say, mm. systemically is getting more and more difficult to do the gold standard treatment that we want to give people. Yeah. You know, we want to give people the right treatment at the right time to the right people. Mm. <laughs> and it's just becoming more and more difficult. And so I think there's also a lot of fear within healthcare professionals of doing like the wrong thing. And obviously we want to make sure Mm. that we fix these issues Mm. that happen, especially if they are systemic. Mm. So how satisfactory is the process for consumers? That's a really good question. So in, in my time working for HDC, I got to see, I guess, both extremes. So I got to see a lot of cases where people felt that that they hadn't been heard, that, that HDC hadn't done a good job at resolving their complaint. But I think on the whole, most people who go through the HDC process do actually feel that it works. It, it really depends on the nature and the severity of the complaint. So if the complaint is, is something that then involves you know, death, for example, complaints to do with, with mental health and suicide, I don't think that the process is particularly therapeutic for people who, who are going through those really difficult and traumatic situations. But for complaints where the issue is primarily around communication, understanding and, you know, access to the basic services. I think that, yeah, on the whole, the system does treat those complaints well. But then just to circle back to the the systemic issues that we touched on before, I think that the HDC is really out of its depth when it comes to addressing those problems. So, for example, one of the big issues that I dealt with when I was was working for HDC, and it's still a big issue now, is around the use of surgical mesh, which has been found to cause quite serious harm in some patients. And in some countries, in the UK, for example, they've stopped using it altogether. In New Zealand, we're still using it, and it's still causing a lot of harm to, to people, particularly women. And that's something that, that the HDC was did a lot of work on to highlight within the sector, but no, nothing has really changed. It's a problem that ultimately needs to be addressed by, by the government in terms of introducing better standards. And the, the, these are decisions that that they're outside the wheelhouse of the HDC and the HDC can make recommendations. They make lots of recommendations to the sector, but often those recommendations aren't. The sector aren't kind good. of has to like follow up with it, follow through with it, doesn't it? Yeah, often what happens is they will go through the motions of having a review or, or whatever, but then nothing really happens. Oh yes, that's really classic, isn't yeah. it? Because I think what we don't do enough of in medicine mm. is learning, from, well, in healthcare mm. in general, is like learning from mistakes. That probably happens in other sectors as well. It's just healthcare is the only one that I've got experience yeah. in. Within hospitals, like internally, mm. we have the system called like Datix, mm. where if you have an error for all sorts of different things, patients fallen over and hurt themselves, mm. or I've prescribed a medicine wrong or something yeah. like that, we're supposed to put in a thing called a Datix, mm. where you talk about what the problem was, what you've done to try and alleviate the problem, and who ultimately responsible and what was like the maximum harm Mm. so that somebody else can go through and be like hey what are the systemic issues that we could have done differently to improve it and make sure this doesn't happen again Mm. which is all like 
really great and yeah. it's good. But within healthcare and hospital systems, like you said, we're, we're so stretched at the moment that sometimes we actually don't have time to do this like extra paperwork mm. when our actual workload is so high. And the workload is like the thing that like led us to make the mistake that we need to now do paperwork for. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. It becomes a kind of vicious cycle, right? The, these problems just compound and get worse. I would say that HTC has come a long way in the last 20 years. There was a time when they were very much focused on individual fault or fi- fi- finding fault with individuals. And I, th- I think the approach they've taken in more recent years has been, I guess, less punitive, more more nuanced. There's an understanding that, that the system is complex and human error is it's unavoidable. People make mistakes. That's a given. But the system needs to be designed in, in such a way that it minimizes the harm that, that those errors can do. And yeah, actually does often also come back to questions around funding and resources and whether the system is coping with demand. It's really interesting how safe the work environment is mm. in terms of like psychological safety for healthcare workers. So there's this book that I read called mm. Black Box Thinking, I think it's by Matthew Saeed, and mm. it's talking about workplace safety. And they compare two industries. One, the airline industry, very safe, mm. lots of flying around the world and very few crashes for the amount of flights happening in the world, right? And like hospitals, Right. And the amount, I don't know the exact numbers, but I just know that there are lots and lots of people who have been adversely affected through healthcare. So, what we call iatrogenic injury. So, like Mm -hmm. injury from overprescribing, underprescribing, or all sorts of things. A lot of excess mortality happens in places, probably more so in places like America, where there's a really high litigation culture there. And one of the things it was saying that if you have a ward or department or whatever where the management is very strict, no nonsense, you've got to do it right 100% of the time, there's no room for failures, is that actually the outcomes there are worse than mm. if you have a management that's, hey, like we get it, like we're all human, there are mistakes that can be made because we're not perfect, but let's do the best that we can to make the system as good as possible to reduce human error. And if there is a problem, let me know about it. And maybe we can work something out to first alleviate the issue it's created and also prevent it from happening ever again. Absolutely. And that's the way continuous quality improvement works. And the concept of quality improvement is really interesting. I think, yeah, it came out of the automotive industry in Japan. But those concepts have been increasingly applied to healthcare, as you say, where those concepts are applied correctly, they do lead to real improvement. So in the past, when you said the HDC were more mm. individualistic and punitive, yeah. what effects did that have? There, there was a lot of hostility to the HDC, a lot of distrust within within the sector. And I suspect there still is, and then you would be able to speak to that more, more than I can. I just think we probably don't like complaints. <laughs> yeah. The thing is doctors, we don't, we don't like being wrong. <laughs> that's, that's true, and I suppose it's is human nature. But in the time I, I worked for HDC, there, there was, a, I guess, a shift in the, in the culture, if you like, where there, there was a greater awareness and understanding of the yeah the complexities of the health system. And the commissioner at the time, the former commissioner, 
Anthony Hill was very interested in quality improvement and he did try to embed some of that thinking in the HDC's work. And I believe that the current commissioner has, has, has continued that. So they are, they have, they have evolved, if you like, whereas yeah, in, in, the, in the past, I think it was very much yeah, looking at who's to blame when something goes wrong rather than necessarily looking at the bigger picture. That's right, because if mm. you're like always looking for like the person to yeah. blame who it's like their problem, their mistake, then people are just going to not tell anybody when there's something wrong until it becomes a real problem. Yeah. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really interesting when you read the code of rights and the legislation, it refers to consumers. Yes. It doesn't refer to patients yes. or citizens or people. It refers to consumers. And that I think that reflects the historical context in which this legislation was written. This was in the, the early mid-90s during a time of economic reform. There was a real shift towards what a lot of people call neoliberalism, the idea that the government is too big and inefficient, what we need is more market competition. And that was, that, that was true in health policy as well as economic policy. During the early 90s, the national government of Jim Bolger, actually, they tried to privatise the health system. They, oh, uh, they introduced user pays for hospital stays. So really? You, yeah. So at one point we Yeah, well, at one to, point okay. if you ended up in hospital, you had to pay to be there. They replaced what were, there used to be area health boards, which were more or less DHBs. <laughs> they replaced those with these, they called them crown health enterprises, oh, yes, which I essentially remember. ran yeah. as, as private, always, you know, private businesses almost. They had to make a profit. So they introduced market forces to the health system. And so that was the background, that was the context in which the Health and Disability Commissioner was established. Right. And I think a lot of people don't know that. They've forgotten or they're just too young to remember. <laughs> but it, maybe it, weren't alive at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that. <laughs> but it, it's really interesting when you think about it in that historical and political context. Because what does that mean then as a consumer? Mm. Yeah, when you hear the word consumer, you think you think of people trading in the marketplace, right? You're I guess buying, it's more of an active things. thing, right? Yeah. You're active when you're yeah. like the consumer. But if you're labelled as a patient, it's far more passive, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I suppose it, it does give a, a sense of agency and yeah, I, th I think that is, is very true. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not, it doesn't have to be negative. But the kind of the flip side of that is when we focus too much on individuals, we miss the bigger picture. So society. And I think the health system is by its nature very collectivist. It's about the, the greater good. Well, and, it's trying and, to be and, anyway. In <laughs> society. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's how most people think of health, really. So I guess there's two ways of thinking about health where you're like, okay, do we want to give as many people the most that we're good that we can get overall? Or do we want to give as mm. many people the gold standard 100% best care as possible and leave all the rest behind? <laughs> yeah, that's the dilemma. Whether you look at it from a utilitarian perspective, as you say, the greatest good for the greatest number. Oh yes, utilitarian. That's uh, <laughs> the word I was looking for. <laughs> or, yeah, or whether you, yeah, you strive for that kind of gold standard. And look, I think there are three solutions to the problem we have with healthcare in New Zealand. The first is to increase funding, which to be fair, the Labour government has done that. They have increased health spending, but arguably not by enough. The second solution is to ration 
health treatment, which is something that we'll do to, to some extent. Oh, like a lot of healthcare that we do is rationing. Yeah. Like just got to look at things like being able to order scans, mm. for example. Yeah. You know, yeah. Starship Hospital, which is the children's mm. hospital of New Zealand, we have one MRI scanner. Yeah. And you look at the amount of private MRI scanners there yeah. are in the city. There's loads. Yeah. Every suburb, there's pro- every oh. central suburb probably has a yeah. private, yeah. few private radiology suites and all yeah. that. So like I tore my ACL, a ligament mm. in my knee, and I got an MRI like within a week, you yeah. know, but I've got a child who has a bad headache with yeah. some red flags. It can be really difficult for me to get an MRI mm. for that child mm. because I almost have like beg for it. Yeah. Absolutely. It speaks to the yeah the gross inequities that exist within the system. So the government already does or has done those two things, in, in increased funding and ration treatment. But the third is to invest in innovation, technology, to make the system work better and more, more efficiently, which again, maybe we do a bit of that now, although politicians like to talk about innovation, they tend not to do a very good job at it. But I think the answer is a combination of those three solutions. And unless we do make the health system work more efficiently, we're just not going to be able to cope with the ever-growing demand. I think the issue is that in healthcare, Mm. we've actually become increasingly better at saving people's lives, right? Mm. We are so much better at resuscitating people. We're so much better at doing the surgeries with innovative surgery techniques Mm. and equipment and things like that and new medicines for like cancer and all these sorts of things. Like those are happening, like for sure. There's like no doubt that medicine has gotten better. But I think the issue is that we're getting more and more people who are unwell due to like systemic environmental Mm. stuff. And so we're having all of this money funneled into like health, which Mm. is, okay, fine, we need it. We are doing a lot at the supply end to try and Mm. increase supply. That's fine. We all, I don't think there's any hospital in New Zealand that can be like, oh yeah, no, we've definitely got enough nurses and doctors. (laughs) I don't think there's anybody who's saying that. But what I feel is that there's not enough going into actually like... Mm. Reducing demand, Absol- and from an economic point of view, like it's two things, right? Supply mm. demand. Yeah, yeah, it, it is it very much. And I think one of the most effective ways to address that is is to invest a lot more in prevention in primary healthcare. And I read one a statistic that a dollar invested in primary healthcare has four times the return on investment that a dollar spent on on hospital treatment does. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, that, like, yeah, that's huge. So, w- when I talk to some of my colleagues about mm. what do you guys think? we need to do to make things better? What can we change to make Te Whatu Order better? Because mm. we've got Te Whatu Order, w- where are we going? Yeah. I don't know if anybody's completely sure and that's okay, the, the mm. future's unpredictable. We might have another pandemic, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but some really interesting things that came out of this discussion was that for some of my GP colleagues is that a large proportion of the patients that they're seeing, mm. and I don't know exactly where they're practicing, I think it was in, within Auckland, they're saying mm. a large proportion of the appointments that they're seeing, they're, mm. This is just two individuals mm. saying that maybe 40% of like their appointments mm. are people coming in for, what's the word, for renewals of like medical certificates for sickness benefits and ACC certificates and things like that. Yeah. Now, this isn't to say that those people don't need to be on the sickness benefit mm. or whatever, mm. but we're in a state where if that's taking up 40% of some GP's time, yeah. then that's not really an effective use of their time from a society's point of view, from a mm. GP point of view, because we get it again and again. People are saying, oh, we take two, three weeks to be able to see our GP for things that are medically important. I don't know how do we fix this problem, but I don't want to have GPs <laughs> spending 40% of their time renewing medical certificates. 
Yeah, that's that's shocking. Yeah, yeah, forty percent of the time. This is just anecdotally by a couple of my GP colleagues. Yeah, but even so, I'm sure it's probably more common than just a couple of GPs facing that. Yeah, oh no, I'm sure, and that that just remind reminds me of something that I learned when I worked at HTC, which is that a lot of DHBs, I mean, the DHBs have been disestablished now or in the process of being disestablished, I'm not sure. Something. <laughs> but anyway, when I worked for HTC, a lot of DHBs still had paper-based systems. Yes. For yeah, referrals, for, med- yes. for medical referrals. That's just incredible. It's like they, they were stuck in the 80s. Oh, yes, absolutely. The GP software that everyone uses still is called like MedTech or something. Yeah. And if you've ever yeah. been to your GP, you're like, oh, wow, this looks like software that was made with like Windows. 98 or mm. something and it probably was probably was. yeah <laughs> so there are huge there've got to be huge inefficiencies there and not only that there's a lot more risk when you're dealing with with a paper based oh, yeah, referrals yeah you know still if i'm in the emergency department where i'm working at the moment yes like yeah. most of our like discharge summary assessment note kind of paperwork yeah. is online kind of thing yeah. within our system but everything else is paper based yeah. where we write observations like vital signs yeah. where we write medications and stuff like that it's mm. all on paper yeah. which is like ah oh, and then you like lose it and you're like yeah. oh no yeah. when did the person last get this antibiotic oh yeah. no we don't know <laughs> and I'm sure it's happened multiple times no matter how many datexes yeah. we put yeah, through yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know if that will change and it's very location dependent mm. as well so for example I think if you work in North Shore mm. a lot of their notes their yeah. medications their Vital signs is all done mm. electronically, so it's all able to audit yeah. it. Like it doesn't just so magically get century. lost. You're not <laughs> yeah. like fighting someone else over the same copy yeah. of notes, things yeah. like that. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know when this is going to happen, but it is 2023 now. And I remember talking to one of my colleagues who has spent some time working in Japan, and this was like early 2000s, mm. like. I'm saying like somewhere around 2001 yeah. and they were like, oh yeah, I just did this, spent some time like working in Japan while my partner was there and just volunteering and this is a brand new hospital. They're like, can you just come help out yeah. for a bit? We teach some of our junior doctors and just like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and then and this is like 2001, 2002 maybe yeah. where like everything was electronic. 2001, 2002, like what? <laughs> why are we literally stuck in the stone ages? Yeah, it's shocking. And I think... Part of it maybe is a reflection on New Zealand, on the kind of society. We are quite conservative, but insular, maybe afraid of change and innovation. We also don't like what well, the government doesn't like to invest much in, in innovation and, and, and new infrastructure, which is why we have Do you have mean like a, just the current government or do you oh, mean like previous governments oh, or uh, all the governments? It, it's across many governments over decades, governments of Labour and National left and right, have failed to invest in the future. Because um, one of the things that I've seen before is, I don't know yeah. exactly the numbers, the hard numbers from when yeah. Labour took over as government mm. in 2017. And I know that they have increased funding for yeah. health, as you say. Yeah. But one of the shocking things is that over, was it three terms? Three terms, national three, was in government. Over the yeah. three terms that national were in mm. government beforehand, yeah. you look at, they're obviously very like pro-immigration, which mm. is fine, great. Yeah. And we had lots of population growth during those three terms. Mm. But what we actually didn't have was any further investment in health because there was yeah. like, oh yeah, we're like doing really good in health. So mm. we're, like you say, let's ration healthcare. And yeah. you just see this graph mm. of like population going steadily up. That's right. And healthcare... Yeah. Being the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that's right. The spending hasn't kept up with population growth, and arguably, maybe hasn't kept up with inflation. I think the I think last year and the last budget, the government spent about it might just over twenty billion dollars on, on on healthcare, and that that was that was quite considered. You know, so is this the last increase. government or the new? Oh, sorry, the, the current term? government last year in the twenty twenty two budget spent. I think it was about. 
20 something billion, which was equated to about 10% of GDP. For context or for, for comparison, I think the US spends about 20% of their GDP on healthcare, although arguably they get much worse outcomes. Much worse. Goes back to the whole HDC <laughs> thing, right? So yeah. we've got the HDC yeah. and that's like a process of complaints and trying to get over th- these issues and which yeah. is actually, I think overall, mm probably like a pretty good system mm. where people can make a complaint and then we can mediate that and yeah. then try and come up with a solution. There's usually an apology from the healthcare worker and the person mm. and there's reached some sort of mm. agreement. And like I said, it's probably therapeutic for like most people. Yeah. But it is difficult as like a healthcare worker to get that because you're like, oh no, I want to be like good yeah. all the time. And it feels a judgment on the healthcare worker mm. as like a person. But it sucks, but I think what we need to recognise in mm. New Zealand as well is that things could be way worse. Like we could be working in America where there's like a whole industry in litigation for that's like right. healthcare practices. Yeah, that's right. And then of course there's health insurance. Yeah. It's, yeah, we have a vastly better system. It's just that the system isn't working as well as it, it should. <laughs> <laughs> We've got high aspirations. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But the government hasn't has just hasn't done nearly enough to invest in future proofing the health system. I mean, if you look at if you look at primary health, for example, going back to prevention, between nineteen ninety eight and twenty sixteen, twenty one percent of New Zealanders were unable to access a GP because of the cost. So it was too expensive. Twenty one percent. And that makes us second only to the US when it comes wow. to the cost of, of primary health care. It's an extraordinary statistic. And if our objective is to reduce demand on the health system, then we need to invest in in primary health care. Absolutely. Yeah. Because like I say, we're doing all this work on expensive medicines and Mm. surgery, but we're doing very little for the prevention stuff. Yeah. And... Thing, like you say, people are getting older. We're getting more complicated like in terms of people having multiple yeah. health problems. And the way that primary health care is structured at the moment with only funding 15-minute appointments, mm. I don't know if you can really achieve much at all, really. No, absolutely. And I think back to many of the complaints that I saw at HDC, and it would be things along the lines of someone presented to their GP with headaches, dizziness or whatever and they were sent on their way and with it was a Panadol. Brain tumor and it turns out yeah months later they end up in hospital and they've got a brain tumor now did the GP fail them maybe but it's often not that so I think simple that also the issue is right is that you're mm. in that case right as a GP yeah. and someone comes with you yeah. like a headache and some vague symptoms yeah. right obviously as a GP you'd want yeah. to do things like yeah. safety netting and stuff yeah. making sure if it doesn't get if it doesn't yeah. get better, come back and see me or whatever. Yeah. But obviously there's an added cost, yeah. time, transport factor to all of those things as well. But the other thing is actually is that GPs can't order brain scans really. Mm. It's really difficult in the public system yeah. for a GP to do that. In the private, yeah, sure. Mm. If you've got the money or you've got the private health insurance, the GP can do a referral because it's private. Mm. So it's, oh, yeah, sure, I've got $5,000 for an MRI or however much money it costs. Yeah. But you can't. If you have no private health insurance, like a GP has to refer mm. you onto the hospital and yeah. the hospital has to then accept that referral mm. and then you're on like a three, four, six-month wait list for an MRI. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's right. So, so, so it is another clear example of a systemic... So yeah. I was reading the HDC Code of Rights <laughs> yeah. today. I saw one of them and it was about... One of the lines was about telling people about like how timely a test ah, or investigation yes, or yes, a procedure would yes, be yes. and that's like part of the yes. code. And I was like... <laughs> 
oh yeah no I'm sure we break that code uh, often because the problem is you can't you we don't know <laughs> I literally don't know I'm like yeah. it could be tomorrow it could be in a week it could be months we just yeah. don't know <laughs> yeah yeah exa- exactly it's really it's the code I think was probably written in a more innocent time it, it it just doesn't, maybe just doesn't reflect the reality of healthcare. Because now. GPs are restricted on mm. what they can and can't do. And in a 15 minute thing, and as somebody who's worked in pediatrics, I have mm. been somebody who's like holding like a referral phone, GPs who need to refer patients yeah. in like for like review or asking for advice or whatever. It is so hard because mm. I might be in the middle of either resuscitating a patient or I've got five patients going on. Yeah. I've got a family member who's crying, mm. all this kind of stuff like that. Mm. And yes, I do need to answer the phone. If if I'm in the middle of that because it yeah. could be like a bigger emergency coming or something, oh, right? Yeah. But then sometimes it'll be like, oh, I've got this patient. I'm not sure about this. Do they mm. need to come to hospital? And sometimes um, I'm not my 100% like nicest person on mm. the phone. Be like, sorry, <laughs> can you just like call me back or something? Yeah. You know what I mean? And like 10 minutes yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And it's hard mm. because they've got stuff to do. I've got stuff to do. We're all really stretched. It's like a really crappy system, yeah. especially because when you're like a junior pediatric mm. doctor, it's like, we don't know everything. And it's also that Dunning-Kruger effect where the more you know, the more you're like, oh, well, I actually didn't know that. But somehow I'm responsible yeah. for a lot of the kids mm. in Auckland. Like, mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, this yeah. is something that might lead to problems and harm. Absolutely. It's not a good system and it's mm. not changing. Absolutely. And I don't know whether you agree with this statement, but medicine isn't an exact science. No. Often there's a lot of gray We matter. try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So of course, uh, yeah, the diagnoses kind of provisional, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and there's the, always like a, there's like a movement to broaden healthcare to yeah. make the maximum benefit for the most people, mm. but then also a movement to like individualize healthcare like yeah. for the person. And it's like really hard to make a good balance of both because obviously mm. individualizing healthcare for everyone is like the gold standard. Yes, let's yeah. absolutely do that. But when you have a limited mm. budget, limited resources, you can only do what you can do. And it is unfortunate that there will be people who are harmed in this process. But if we don't have more resources, yeah. we can't help those people. That's right. There, there are a lot of difficult choices to be made and there's no perfect solution. If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. From a government major political party point of view, Mm. how much can they even really do to affect change within healthcare because to me in my understanding it's mm. very high level here's money is what they can do and obviously there's stuff that they can do through the minister of health and mm. I feel like a lot of my colleagues would probably agree with me mm. is that there are a lot of healthcare workers who aren't particularly satisfied with yeah. our current health minister mm. Andrew Little some might say yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that a lot <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you're right. The minister is just so far removed from the reality of frontline health work. And all of the information he gets, all of the reports that come across his desk are probably written by top tier managers, officials 
in Wellington. And so there's a lot of information that probably doesn't filter up to the beehive. And I think that was particularly a big problem during the or during the pandemic. You look at some of the decisions that were made around around vaccines and PPE. It's, it's apparent that there's a disconnect between the government and the health system. I don't know how we address that, but I think we have to look at many layers of bureaucracy that exist within government, not just in health, but particularly in health, where you have all these middle managers and administrative staff who make a lot of decisions about how money is spent and what have you, how resources are allocated. And we need to look at how that information is fed back. So I think it was an interesting point that I had on the previous Mm. interview with Mike King, because he OIA'd the government about how much money they were spending Mm. and how many sessions they had in this like mental health thing that they were doing. And because he himself through like Gumboot Friday, I think Mm. spent like something like $110, $115 like per 15 minute counseling session per child that is accessing Gumboot Friday. And then he was saying that apparently they gave them this number and it amounted to being something about like 400, over $400 yeah. like per session. And it's that money, we know mm. that money is not all going towards no. like the no. therapist or whoever is like providing the service. And so what's going on that at every yeah. level, is there somebody clipping the ticket? Oh, I think so. And you look at the amount of money that the government spends on consultants. I don't don't have the figure for healthcare, but we're probably talking. We'd be talking ten, tens of millions of dollars, maybe even maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars over several years. That's a lot of money that is not going to service delivery. And you've got to ask why and what's the what's the value for money. And it's so hard because when to me anyway, mm. as soon as a money sum is yeah. more than ten million dollars, yeah. there's so many zeros. Yeah. In a number that I'm mm. like, oh, well, how many zeros is that? Because yeah. like you, you look at interviews with like politicians. And I, mm. I remember watching this interview and it was great. Yeah. It was like J- Jack Tame and Chris Luxon yeah. about money being spent and wasted in the budget or whatever. Yeah. And it's, oh, this much money was wasted. That much money were wasted. And Jack mm. Tame, very tenacious guy, yeah. was like, okay, that's still <laughs> only like 1% of the budget or like less than 1% of the <laughs> yeah. budget. Because I think yeah. it is hard. And when the budget is like is billions and billions of dollars, like $10 million becomes... yeah. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When something is like less than one yeah. percent of the budget, it feels like it's nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. But it is so hard to visualize. Mm. Oh, anything it is. that's it, more than ten million dollars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's often really hard to make sense of where all this money is going because of the yeah the volumes of money we're talking about, the nature of government and bureaucracy, and so I think there, there needs to be more transparency about where absolutely where, um, there the was money this thing that I was reading about, which was I think called the Public Health Commission. Mm which was like around, I think, either in the late 90s or early 2000s, which was like a really interesting thing because I think this is something that we should have, which is like a separate commission. And some might say, oh, you're just going to spend like more money (laughs) on like more bureaucracy or whatever. But their sole purpose was taking Mm. the healthcare system to account. Like we should be doing this. Mm. Why aren't we doing this? And they were independent, Mm. so independently run that I think there was something about anti-smoking. I think that the government at that time was, you know, Mm. still being lobbied by tobacco industry and the public health commission were like, oh, no, we need to promote anti-smoking for everyone. Mm. But on the down low, it was like, oh, no, you can't say that for everyone, just for pregnant women, just yeah. pregnant women. And then they're like, no, 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 like everyone should stop smoking. They're like, oh, don't really like that. And then yeah. decommissioned it. This is what I've been told. And yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Yeah. 
That is crazy. Yeah, I think it's a, it would be really good if we had a separate body mm. that could take the healthcare system to yeah. account. Because at the moment, I feel like we're just fed all this information, mm. and mm. as healthcare workers, mm. we're like, okay, yeah, this is what we're doing now. Yeah. But it's hard to criticize the government oh. and all that in a way that's like constructive. And be like, where are we going? And, where are we going with this? That, okay, that's a really good point that you make. And I go back to the HDC, the Health and Disability Commissioner. In theory, the HDC should be that body. But because the HDC was set up to Save protect and yeah, you protect and promote the rights of individual consumers, it, it can't look at the big picture. And also, I don't know, is there a place for the HDC for me to make a complaint that's mm. not to do with me being a consumer, but me working within the system? Well, not really, is it? <laughs> not really. You can make a complaint on behalf of I see. consumers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there has to be a consumer. Yes. There has to, there has to, that's the problem. There has to be a consumer. And yeah, I think that's the flaw. There's this sort of this individualistic outlook. The Yeah, I guess the, the, neo, the neoliberal model of healthcare. But H- HTC came about because of the unfortunate experiment, that, which is a, a scandal in the late 1980s, a an obstetrician, a very well-respected obstetrician, Herbert Green, experimented on his patients at the National Women's uh, Hospital. Yes. What he did was he essentially withheld conventional treatment from them whether and didn't tell them, didn't get their consent. This is the uh, cervical yeah, cancer the, Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah. And was, unfortunately, a lot of those, some of those people later got cancer and died and there was a national scandal and, and the government of the day set up a Royal Commission of Inquiry led by Dame Sylvia Cartwright, who was a, then a lawyer, but she went on to become a judge and then Governor-General of New Zealand under Helen Clark. But she led this inquiry and one of her recommendations was to establish a body like the HDC. But you can understand why it was done through that lens of individual rights. It's just that I think, yeah, we need to rethink that for the 21st century. How would you change that then if you change the HDC to be more as a collective? No, I think this is very controversial and I, a lot of people would probably disagree with me, but I do think maybe we need to move away from the code of rights and have something else in its place that is, I guess, like a sort of, a, I guess, a charter that What's the difference between a charter and well, a Well, it's a semantics, but I think we need to replace, I think we need to replace that that emphasis on, on, on the individual was something broader. Or at least we need to give the HTC a broader mandate. Either way, I think we yeah, we need to get away from this sort of neoliberal model. Yeah. Perhaps for the HDC, not only like a broader mandate, but yeah. broader recognition that their reports that we really need yeah. to take them seriously. Yeah, oh absolutely. The HTC does need to have more teeth. And I think there's also some of that is down to the individual commissioner. If they were willing to be take on a more activist role and speak out on some of these issues and push back against the government of the day, then that in itself could be quite effective without the need for any rewrite of the law. But as it is, the the framework doesn't really encourage that. So I want to bring it back to the the Cartwright inquiry. Yeah. I thought that was like a, that's a really mm. interesting thing that happened here in New Zealand. Absolutely. Because that was a time not so long ago yeah. where there was a huge paternalistic yeah. sort of relationship between doctor and patient yeah. or consumer or whatever you want to call yeah. it. And although that things have gotten better, yeah. we don't have that kind of stuff, stuff still happens. That paternalistic behavior still happens. Like people will say patient satisfaction is like Mm. not a measure of like health outcomes. And I'm like, I don't, Interesting. I don't believe that. Yeah. No, I think patient satisfaction is really important because then you get Mm. more patient engagement. They believe in what you're saying and Mm. all that. But at the same time, you need to empower 
people yeah. to make those decisions for themselves mm. and to seek healthcare as well. So yeah, I don't know how we're going to get out of this because there's a lot of people who are making decisions for their patients and the yeah. families without really actually giving them the full picture because that's the other thing, yeah, right? Absolutely. Is that in the code is informed consent. Oh, yes, oh, ab- absolutely. And I think that goes to the heart of why HTC exists and, and there's something that, that we must protect. Because we're breaking it all the time. So another example yeah. is that you look at studies about prescribing medications, for example, mm like antibiotics for infections mm. for Māori Pacifica and non-Māori Pacifica. And there's higher prescription rates for non-Māori Pacifica because some yeah. of the attitudes that have been expressed by colleagues in the past, not necessarily my colleagues, but people have said, mm. oh, Māori and Pacifica people just, they're not as likely to go and get their prescription done and things like that, or they won't understand yeah. or whatever. So yeah. there's kind of no point. And people were like, oh, I'm not racist or whatever, and the system's not racist. But the point is that these statistics, that you can't fake that. No, no that's right. The numbers speak for themselves. And uh, there's this like, really interesting study in, done in the US looking mm. at like mortality rates and morbidity for babies and they look at whether the baby was black or white mm. and whether the doctor looking after the baby was black or white. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that bad, but mm. interesting is that if you are a black baby and you have a white doctor, you've got an increased mortality risk compared to if the baby was white. Oh, that's shocking. But if you had a black doctor, mm. there is no difference in mortality between wow. black babies and white babies. Wow. Yeah. People say racism yeah. isn't there anymore. Yeah. And I think we're moving into this uh place in society where sure like explicit racism isn't yeah. a thing anymore like when I was a kid walking down the street yes absolutely looking mm. like this people yeah. would shout things like go home you Asian rubbish like that and I haven't had that experience for quite some time mm. I think we've gotten rid of a lot of explicit racism mm. not all of it obviously mm. but I think the counter to that is actually a lot of the racism that we have in society has gone more underground yeah and in my opinion institutional racism is so much harder to one identify it is. and to deal with because how do you deal with that how do you deal with the fact that Māori and Pacifica don't live as long because yeah. they're not prescribed medicines they're not referred as quickly they're not investigated as thoroughly or things like that yeah and I think in a way the kind of ideology of neoliberalism this emphasis on on, on the individual is one explanation for why people have such a hard time conceptualizing institutional racism because institutional racism isn't it's it's not really about the fault of individuals it's about the about the culture and the system and so people think i'm not racist in my day-to-day life i treat everyone equally oh, i'm colorblind but sure, they're part the of a system rubbish but they're, but i don't see color <laughs> <laughs> but people might actually believe that they don't see how the culture they live in is is not colorblind it's Interesting because when you talk about anti-racism and white privilege and yeah. things like that, right, you, you're, generally you get two camps, mm-hmm. right? You get the camp of like, yeah, if the racists, mm. they're all bad people. Yeah. And then you get the people be like, oh, I didn't colonize this country yeah. and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like a good person. And yeah. I probably are like a good yeah. person. But the problem is, I think, is that we're 
labeling these people as racist and bad or whatever, yeah. but we're not really like digging down to, oh, why do they have these beliefs and yeah. how can we change those beliefs and how can we make a better society and like better government? Because I think what we're, what we're seeing in like politics is that there's mm-hmm. a lot of what sounds like really good ideas yeah. and I'm like, oh, I don't know if they're like they're actually good ideas. I'm feeding <laughs> off of what people think <laughs> yeah. is like the right thing. Pop- yeah. Populist yeah, kind very of like ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like how do you – like so – with the taxpayers' union, right? Like, how does the taxpayers' union come into play when it comes to like politics? The taxpayers' union is a it's an advocacy group. Some people would call it a lobby group. I don't <laughs> think lobby is the right word. They advocate for certain policy positions. I mean, their mission is, is smaller government, lower taxes, and more accountability. And so they would lean to the right on on most policy issues. But I think they are genuinely non-partisan, as in they, they're they willing to criticise National and Act, for example, if there's something they disagree on. Oh, yeah? yeah what have yeah. they criticised? Oh, I, I, the Taxpayers' Union was actually established in, in 2013 under the John Key-led national government. And they were very critical of some of the, the policies at the time. They were particularly concerned about corporate welfare, so the government giving subsidies and tax breaks or whatever to the private sector supposedly to generate economic growth and create more jobs, but often there, there was questionable value. And so the Taxpayers' Union was founded on that issue. And obviously now that we've got a centre-left government, a lot of the focus has been, of their focus has been on on critiquing Labour. But they've also been critical of Christopher Luxon and, and his sort of, uh, some of his wishy-washy statements around tax. Yeah. So I feel like it's interesting that mm. like the taxpayers union, there's, there's a feeling like that there it's just full of old mm. white conservative men and things like <laughs> that. And that's the, I guess the, actually the history is not mm. that, is it? Like it's people oh. who are actually willing to critique both yeah. sides. And I think it's important to be able to critique both sides. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Politics is inherently about conflict. The reason why we have politics is because people disagree on the way we should run society. People have different worldviews, different values, and different ways of relating to other people. The system we have in New Zealand anyway is about finding a way to resolve those conflicts through peaceful means, through debate or through having elections. And, and politics is, it can be a force for good, but it can also be a force for bad as well. I find it really difficult in health because I feel like yeah. people want to keep it not political or whatever, yeah. but at the end of the day, like health is so influenced mm. By politics, right? Yeah. I think it's going to be a really interesting yeah. election year this year because there's going yeah. to be a lot of health policies coming out yeah. that, that will try to like swing people yeah. either way. And I don't know, it's hard working under that system within yeah. public health because it feels like we know what we want and what we need mm. as healthcare workers, but it, it feels like there is like a dearth of people at the top, yeah. either within government, yeah. parliament, or like within Te Whatu Order or whatever, yeah. who have like a good understanding. Yeah, absolutely. See, I think a lot of the social and economic problems we have in New Zealand and around the world are deeply embedded in some ways intractable, as in we may never solve problems of inequality and crime, but there has to be a better way of doing things, surely. (laughs) What I really want to see this year is more participation in democracy. I want to see citizens of New Zealand, permanent residents, whatever, anyone who can vote, and I want to see everyone going out there and demanding more, demanding 
better because the only change that we see in society mm. and policy is the change that benefits the people who are the loudest. Absolutely. I think the biggest challenge that we've got in New Zealand, probably true for any other Western country, is that too much power is concentrated in the hands of a few. Now, everyone has the right to vote, of course, unless you're a, you're a prisoner, and then you don't have the right to vote in New Zealand. You and I both have the right to vote and our vote is supposedly equal. In reality, a lot of the decisions that governments make are influenced by those with money. You look at donations to political parties, look at uh, where National and Labour get their money from. It, it's largely from the wealthy individuals. And th those individuals, you could argue, have a disproportionate amount of influence on the system. But not only that, if you look at the housing crisis, Okay. Now, home ownership rates in New Zealand, I think, are about 65% when I last checked, which is down from about 74% in the early 90s. Home ownership is declining, but governments of both Labour and National are very much looking out for the interests of those who own property, existing homeowners, because that's where so much of the country's wealth is concentrated. And so... People who own homes, who own wealth in this country, get more important to the politicians because oh, what? Because, <laughs> because that's where. It's I'm where probably the, not going to own a home for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but they're the people. They're the people who vote, and they're the people who. Really interesting because I think what's crap right mm. in New Zealand is that we got like you say the low yeah. home ownership rates because yeah. it's so hard mm. to buy a house. Mm. But also we've got really crap like tenancy rights. So yep. if you've got a really good landlord and the house that you found is not too expensive expensive and yeah. isn't too crap you're probably like okay but yeah. that can't be said the same can't be said for a lot of people and other countries that have low home mm. ownership rates like i think some like european countries like yeah. germany have low home owner rates yeah and that's okay because people Absolutely. it's cheap to rent there's really good yeah. tenancy laws so you yeah. can stay there you know, uh. 10 year lease like however long you want to live mm. there and when you know that you can live somewhere for 10 years and yeah. you can make little adjustments to the place to make it suit yeah. you as a home you you can settle down there, you can have children there and they go mm. to the same school, you set up a network of community and all yeah. that, then of course you're like your life is going to be so much better than if you can easily get kicked out of your mm. your rental because the homeowners want to put their kids there or whatever. And, you know, you have to move and you don't know if you'll mm. be able to move into somewhere that's as good or in the same neighbourhood. Yeah. Like the kids still go to the same school, all that kind of crap. Yeah. That's right. Oh, you know, you might have to switch you know, mm. district health boards. And even though we've got this whole thing of Tefatu order, you still yeah. have to get your care from your DHB. Yeah. I don't know what we're going to call them anymore, like the hospital, <laughs> the locality. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think healthcare, we cannot separate it from politics in our country. And That's we right. need to demand more from from the politicians. That's right. Yeah. So one final question for you. <laughs> okay. For some reason, it's like your final meal. Yeah. What would you have? Final uh, supper, or final, yeah, for your final meal, <laughs> what would you have? Oh, that's hard. Fish and chips. Fish and chips. From where? From where though? Oh, it'd have to be homemade, of course. Homemade. Okay. Uh, we're, 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 like, with salad with, on the side. Oh, okay. Okay. And is it tomato sauce or is it like salt and vinegar or is it like aioli? Like what? Well, be more a little I, bit descriptive. I, I prefer tomato sauce for my chips. Is that right? Is that right? And a beer or no beer or? Well, if it's my last meal, then yeah, I have to have a beer. Yeah, okay. And then hokey or like snapper or? Oh, snapper. Snapper. Yeah. And breaded or not breaded pan fried. Batter, pan fried pan fried okay 
righto, yeah. righto. <laughs> Good choice. Got to be a little bit healthier. Pan fry. Yeah, olive yeah. Oil with or a something. wedge of lemon. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, Josh. My pleasure. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Um.